I'm Dr. Phil Carruthers, and this is All the Phils, where I share with you my personal life experiences, including some professional ones. If you're looking for encouragement, hope, and some fun stories, you come to the right place. On today's episode, we talk about asthma. I share with you my childhood experience with asthma, as well as my fun time at asthma camp. Let's get to it. Welcome back, everyone. Episode three. We are three episodes in. This is episode three. So exciting for you to be here. Uh, We've already dropped two episodes. If you haven't listened to those first two episodes, I encourage you to go listen to those after this episode. Um, You know, we do not do these sequentially. I kind of mentioned that in the second episode. So uh, feel free to listen to them in whatever order that you wish. Uh, But we're happy to have you here. If you're a first time listener, welcome, welcome to all the fills. And if you are a returning listener, I'm happy to have you. Uh, so this is going to be a fun one today. I know last week was uh, a little bit deeper uh, with the context that we, you know, that I discussed uh, about, you know, grief. You know, we talked about grief. We did talk about some domestic violence, and it was a it was a deeper episode. I I felt that that episode is one that was truly on my heart. It needed to be shared, and I've had such uh, great responses from it. So thank you for listening. Thank you for reaching out to me and encouraging me and allowing me to encourage you. And um, that's what the show is all about. It's about encouraging others. If it's not encouraging others, the show does not need to continue. So thank you for, you know, listening and for having me in your ears. (laughs) You know, whether you're driving, getting ready for work in the morning, going to the gym, uh, you know, whatever it may be, whatever setting that you're in, you're listening. So I appreciate you. So thank you. So before we get into talking about my childhood with asthma and all that good stuff, I wanted to share briefly about my current ongoing experience with pathology residency. So I actually got through the week last week. It was orientation. You know, I got to meet all the attendings, all my uh, upper level residents, which are great, uh, great, great people. Uh, I got to uh, meet up with my uh, two other colleagues as well. Um, You know, I hope they're listening uh, you know, and it's a, it is an exciting time, you know, uh, for me, uh, this is my second, (laughs) this is my second run through with residency. Uh, you know, many of my close friends, uh, and family members, they know that, uh, this is not my very first residency. I was actually a pediatric resident for roughly a year and decided that it was not, um, it was not for me long-term. Uh, I enjoyed my patients. I love the pathology processes, the mechanisms behind diseases, you know, childhood illnesses. And, you know, I love that. I just did not have that desire to uh, carry out that pediatrician uh, career. Uh, But I love their diseases. I always tell people, you know, kids are great, but I love their diseases more. (laughs) So uh, I made that decision to switch to uh, pathology. And so I may talk about that a little bit more uh, later on down the road as far as like the elongated version of my track from being a pediatrician to briefly being a crisis counselor. I did share that on my last episode. And then while I waited to match, uh, matches the official format for um, literally matching a, uh, you know, a potential resident to a program uh, for residency training. So uh, if you ever want to look up uh, what entail what's entailed in match, you know, just do a quick Google search of it. Just kind of see what the timelines like from you know beginning of med school 
to the match process, to residency, to, you know, independent, full-fledged practicing on your own doctor in the United States. Uh, so yeah, I encourage you to check that out. I actually have an interest in pediatric pathology. So it wasn't a, you know, it was not a waste of a residency year, but more than anything, it was an additional stepping stone that allowed me to really see, okay, I really want to specialize in something that I love, that I desire, that I enjoy learning about. And over time, if you are just not enjoying what you're learning, it will catch up to you emotionally. It will catch up to you mentally. You will feel trapped. You'll feel like you have no choice. You have to learn this. And when it gets to a point of you have to learn it and there's just no desire, there's no craving to learn it, it's only a matter of time to where you know your soul is going to tell you, hey, you need to make a change. Um, and, and this applies uh, not just in education, in other aspects of your life. Uh, if you need to make a change in your life and you feel that stuck feeling, uh, it's only a matter of time where you feel like, okay, I need to get unstuck. I need to do something about this. It was the same way when I was a social worker. I felt stuck. Not to say that social work is bad. We need social workers. I felt stuck. I wasn't enjoying what I was learning. So I switched to medicine. And when I decided to go into medicine, oh man, I really enjoyed studying about medicine. And then I got into pediatrics and realized that I, I love studying certain aspects of pediatrics that uh, more pertain towards the pathologic side, the pathology side, as opposed to just general pedi pediatrics, right? And I knew I needed to make that change. Uh, you get one life and you need to make that choice now. I you know, what are you going to be happy doing when you're 70 years old, you know, as a job profession? I know for me, pathology, I would be a pathologist. I would want to teach pathology. I already see myself. I'm going to be a, you know, some kind of professor somewhere. I'm going to be an attending. I have a master's in health administration. So chances are I'll be serving on some, uh, you know, administrative boards for a hospital system. You know, and when I talk about that stuff, when I talk about those goals, th those make me happy. And I say that because, you know, if you have those goals for you, you know, you're, you're thinking about what you want to do, nothing and no one is holding you back. And having that mentality is what drove me to where I'm at right now. I didn't want to settle. I hope if you're listening right now, I really hope you are not settling right now. Um, you know, perhaps you're taking those stepping stones towards bettering your career. Maybe you're in college right now. You're an undergrad. You're, you know, you're waiting tables. I was a, I was a waiter. I, I remember waiting tables. Uh, you know, I knew it wasn't the end all be all, but it was a stepping stone towards allowing me to be successful in an eventual career. You know, it started with waiting tables and then I got more focused in my, uh, area of medical expertise. You know, I, I obtained my EMT licensure. Um, I worked as a cardiothoracic, uh, technician at the heart center in Huntsville, Alabama. So shout out to my heart center people, you know, so uh, these are all stepping stones towards your career. So I know I'm kind of going on a tangent right now, but I felt led to share that. All that to say that I'm excited that I'm finally a pediatric pathologist. Uh, I got to do some grossing the other day in the lab. Literally day one, they put you to work. Uh, scalpel in hand, you're measuring, you're preparing specimens for, uh, you know, for processing, for biopsies. I was able to do some grossing and, you know, grossing is where you actually, uh, you know, use like a scalpel or other means of essentially dissecting parts of an organ and you're preparing those, uh, you know, pieces 
uh, for further investigation uh, for histology, which is, you know, study of tissues uh, under a microscope. And that's how we're able to, you know, further diagnose uh, what we're looking at. You know, is this a malignant tumor or is this a benign tumor? Uh, is there anything we should be concerned about? Or is this normal tissue architecture? You know, is this normal? Should we be seeing this? Um, you know, so uh, I'm going to be sharing a lot. Uh, if you follow my Instagram uh, page for the uh, All the Phils podcast, uh, I do like to, you know, upload videos from time to time. Uh, you know, just, you know, my adventures in uh, pathology residency. So be sure to follow that page as well. Um, that's always a fun time. We do also put reminders on there about the episodes that do drop every Mondays, right? They drop right at midnight. And so, yeah, just follow that page and I'll be sure to upload more uh, pictures and videos uh, during my fun, exciting times in uh, pathology residency. So now let's talk about some asthma. So when we think about asthma, we think about uh, a disease, a chronic illness that just inhibits your ability to breathe, right? We all want to breathe normal. We don't want to have anything affecting our ability to breathe. I want to breathe just like every other good breathing person. I know many of us have these, you know, chronic illnesses from childhood, uh, whether it be asthma, diabetes, uh, some of them could be even, you know, cancer. It could be some kind of neurologic disorder. It could be some other immunodeficiency, you know, whatever that may be. Uh, this is my own experience with it. And you know, regardless of what your experience is, uh, we all have those experiences with chronic illness uh, to a degree, whether it directly happened to you or maybe it happened to, you know, a sibling or a loved one. Uh, maybe even right now, you know, you're trying to help take care of a loved one that's, you know, going through rounds of chemo or someone who has uh, just these chronic colds, chronic coughs, you know, whatever chronicity may be, um, it affects us to a, a level. And, and I, I hear you. I see you. Uh, I'm with you when it came to uh, childhood illnesses. So for me, asthma started around uh, second, third grade. So around, you know, age seven, age eight, I started noticing that I wasn't able to, you know, really keep up with uh, the activities and, you know, PE. I think that was really it. Um, I had that exercise induced uh, asthma. And I always found myself having to sit down after, you know, maybe five minutes of activity. You know, we used to play kickball. We used to play dodgeball. Uh, one of my favorite games was pinball. Uh, so essentially, you know, you're in the gymnasium. Uh, there's two pins, um, you know, on your side and two pins on the opposing side. And essentially, it was just like dodgeball, you know, same dodgeball rules, except you had to protect the pin. And essentially, if both of your pins go down because the other team throws the ball, game's over. Uh, you know, you win if you maintain your pin, at least one pin standing. If both your pins fall, you're done. Game's over. Anyway. Fun childhood memory, I remember that, but I could never get through an entire game of pinball. I was always one of the first ones out, not because I was bad at the game, I just, I literally cannot keep up with the, you know, the the uh, the physical, you know, requirements for it because I was always wheezing. I was, and, and when I say wheezing, okay, so wheezing is, um, it's a sign of bronchoconstriction, I know that's a big word. So bronchoconstriction, essentially, you know, we have these air tubes in our lungs called bronchioles. And uh, whenever we, you know, have, you know, at, when asthma occurs, uh, you know, there's a lot of inflammation that occur, happens. And these airway tubes, they, their diameter starts to decrease, right? So it's, it, it gets smaller and smaller diameter and less airflow is able to go through 
those bronchioles. And what happens is, is that it creates this high pitched sound whenever you're trying to, you know, you know, exhale or inhale and you have that wheezing sound. It's a high pitched sound. Um, and so I, I know many of you are familiar with it. Uh, you know, I encourage you to YouTube it sometime, you know, just to listen to someone who's wheezing. It is a high pitched sound and it is probably the most familiar sound that I'm used to growing up. I know wheezing very well. Uh, more than half of my breaths were wheezing. Uh, so it, it was a sign of poorly controlled asthma. And I'll talk about that here uh, a little bit more in detail. So growing up, I always had my red inhaler, my rescue inhaler. I always had it. It was part of my identity. Wherever my shadow went is where I went is where my inhaler went. I mean, they were all, all three of us were always together. That was part of my identity. Uh, without that thing, um, I would struggle. I would struggle to breathe. I would hesitate on, you know, going out with friends and, you know, having fun, running around at the park, um, playing sports of any kind. Uh, I did play sports. I did. Um, I did play baseball uh, when I was six. Uh, our uh, sponsor was Chubby's Plumbing. So I had a Chubby's Plumbing t-shirt, which is pretty cool. Um, you know, and then I played at seven. I, I think I was, you know, played baseball again. Um, you know, just little league. It, it never, I didn't go pro. <laughs> um, and you know, I did play some basketball, I did play like, you know, church league and whatnot, uh, you know, in middle school, but realized that, uh, I'm just, I'm just not able to really do anything meaningful, um, sport wise because of, you know, my asthma. I mean, it was inhibiting me. I wasn't able to, to really live that full childhood life that I wanted to. I wanted to be like the other kids. Right. I always compared myself. I was like, why don't those kids have to have inhalers? You know, I mean, obviously, I don't know everyone's medical condition at that time. But, you know, when you're a little kid, you compare yourself to other kids like, hey, how come they're not having these issues like me? How come I have to wear glasses and they don't? I mean, I started wearing glasses when I was eight. Um, So, you know, poor vision, poor breathing, not a very good combination for sports uh, or any, you know, big athletic activities in general. So I had to, you know, adjust to that. Um, I actually got to know my pediatrician very well growing up. I was always going to the pediatrician for, you know, asthma, uh, you know, asthma attacks or uh, follow up for asthma treatment of any kind. Um, That's actually kind of how I got inspired to become a physician in the first place. I I was exposed to that. Um, You know, my mom, she's the head lab tech for a big group of pediatricians, so uh, they all knew me growing up and I would always see, you know, just kind of a handful of them, you know, just, you know, cir- I'd circulate through each pediatrician. Um, and you know, it was always for the same thing. It was always for asthma, always for asthma. It was never for anything else. It was always for asthma. I mean, sure. Strep throat here and there, uh, maybe an ear infection here and there. I don't remember the ear infections, but, um, it was always asthma always. So along with having those issues with asthma, not only going to the pediatrician so many times, I did frequent our lovely Huntsville Hospital as well. I was always going to the hospital for asthma attacks. You know, when that red inhaler, that rescue inhaler is just not rescuing you anymore. Sadly, many times it did not. Uh, I had to go to the, I had to go to the emergency room. I went to the emergency room several times and majority of the times I had to be admitted Uh, for, you know, close observation, I'd usually stay about, you know, on average, you know, two to three days. I think the longest time that I was in the hospital was for two weeks at one point. 
And I remember it, uh, I was 14, I think at the time uh, the election was going on. I remember George W. Bush was being elected, uh, sworn in as president. And I, I remember this because it was on my TV in my hospital room when I woke up. But, uh, you know, just to kind of do a little, you know, uh, backstory, my family and I had gone camping. This was the last time I ever went camping. Like now if somebody asks me, Hey, you want to go camping? I just say, which hotel are we going to? I will not do, you know, tent-based camping anymore. I'm just not uh, after this experience. So uh, I remember, you know, we we're around, uh, you know, we we're in the woods. We stayed for like four or five days. Um, it was a fun time. Um, it was actually, you know, really fun. Got to hang around the campfire, make some s'mores, uh, you know, a lot of smoke involved. I mean, this was in the fall uh, time, and I just, I had a great time. Uh, you know, I've always had this persistent wheezing, uh, that wheezing has always been a part of my life. Um, it's very rare when it goes away. I think, you know, we had cats. I was allergic to cats. So <laughs> we had three and, uh, for whatever reason, you know, my mom wanted to keep the cats at the house. I'm like, oh, okay. So, uh, you know, I lived on that rescue inhaler and that's what got me through. Uh, so, you know, we went camping and, you know, it was a fun time, but then when we got back, it was a Friday night. I remember two hours after, I mean, I'd had this persistent wheeze throughout the week. Uh, it was, you know, it was nothing out of the ordinary. Uh, it's just when you wheeze like that, when you breathe like that, that, that becomes normal for you. You know, you adapt that as normalcy. And when I got back about two hours in, it, it's almost like it hit me. I mean, I, I always felt like I had a small elephant on my chest when I, when I breathed. Now it feels like two oversized elephants and it just hit me quick. I remember I was in my parents' room in their bedroom. I was watching TV and my rescue inhaler was not rescuing me anymore. And I was trying to gasp for air. I, I couldn't even use full sentences. You know, that's usually a bad indicator. You know, if you're, if you're having to take, you know, deep breaths, if you're not able to, you know, get through full sentences at a time. Um, you know, that's a bad indicator of, you know, asthma control. Uh, I remember as a pediatrician, I would just kind of let kids, you know, I would ask kids, uh, questions that they could tell me in, you know, sentences in full sentences. And obviously I wanted to, you know, I'm sure I'll hear about them, but there's a reason that I wanted to hear that. I wanted to see how many breaths are they going to take in between, you know, each sentence, you know, are they able to make it to full sentence, uh, to full sentences or are they, only able to give me like maybe three or four words before having to take deep breath and then speak again, deep breath, speak again. And sometimes it could be with or without wheezing. Um, so I, you know, backtrack to that night. I mean, again, I was 14. I could not get out one or two words, uh, without having just this bad difficulty. And, you know, I remember I told my, uh, my mother, I said, I, I have to go to the ER and, you know, this wasn't a shock, you know, again, I've been in and out of the ER all the time, but this was different. This is very different. I started to get very dizzy. So it wasn't just the lack of ability to breathe. Now I'm getting dizzy. Now I feel like I'm about to pass out. I have never felt this feeling before. I mean, you know, when you're, you know, I always feel fatigued, you know, I feel tired, generally tired just from breathing. So, you know, when, if you're ever someone who's, you know, breathing hard, breathing deep, breathing fast, it wears you out. It really does. It just drains your energy, you know, and you feel tired and sleepy. But I got to the point to where I felt dizzy. I was going to pass out. I wasn't able to fully support myself anymore. And I just remember uh, kind of laying down on the ground in the survivor position, you know, kind of on my side. And I remember 
I wanted to see myself in the mirror. I wanted to see what I looked like. So I, I used, you know, both hands. I tried to use all my strength just to get up because, you know, even, you know, being in that upward position helped me breathe even just a little bit. I mean, I was struggling to breathe. I was, I was fighting for my life and I didn't even realize it at that point. And I saw in, you know, my mom's vanity mirror uh, in her room, uh, I was turning blue. I was turning, you know, I was cyanosis, right? That's that medical term for, you know, turning blue, that blue discoloration. And it was around my lips. Like I saw it and I would like touch my lips. I was, I was like, why is it doing that color? You know, I, I had no clue. I didn't realize that I've never seen, you know, light blue lips. I was like, well, I don't remember eating any, you know, popsicles. I don't remember eating, eating any blueberries or anything. And, and I just remember that, you know, when I was trying to look, I mean, I had tears come down my face. It was so hard to breathe. And, you know, when you cry, it makes your asthma worse. You wheeze harder. So it was always that balance of trying to not cry, suppress your crying, hold yourself together because it's just going to make it worse. So I had to teach myself that throughout all of childhood. Crying makes your asthma worse. So I had to calm myself as much as possible. But I think when I saw the blue lips, I, I really started to panic. And then I just I wasn't able to keep myself up. Uh, so, again, we called 911 for whatever reason. <laughs> Okay, please call 911 in an, in a matter of an emergency. Uh, if they happen to have a busy signal on the other line, which mine did, unfortunately, hang up and try again immediately. So thankfully, we got them back. Uh, you know, we were able to get a call the second time we were able to get through. And I remember, um, you know, they, they came in, uh, you know, they had like, a, you know, they had black, um, you know, khaki pants. They had that. Uh, you know, that blue paramedic blue, you know, EMT blues that we're used to seeing. And, and I remember like four or five of them came in and I just, I remember how surreal it was. I was like, this is what you see in ER. You know, that was my favorite show growing up was ER. I loved it. Um, and I remember my mom, she was, you know, she was cool, calm and collective. You know, that was kind of her thing. But it never got to the point to where, you know, we had to call 911 and to see that fear in her face. My mom does not show fear. She does not. But when I saw fear in her face, it was the first, you know, the first two things I saw that night. One, my blue lips and two, fear on my mother's face. Those are the first times I've ever seen that. And I remember my dad eventually got home and, uh, you know, my mom called him. I think he was at the church. So, you know, it wasn't far away. He drove home, you know, pretty quickly. And he arrived around the same time, uh, paramedics were there. And I remember talking to him and they had me on a non rebreather mask with, you know, oxygen going. Um, they had me on oxygen. They had me, um, you know, they were checking my, you know, pulse. They had a pulse ox reader on my finger trying to check my oxygenation. And, uh, you know, they were trying to give me these breathing treatments right then and there. And I remember I would slip the mask away from, you know, from my nose to, you know, my side of my cheek. And my dad was there. He was holding my hand, trying to get me to calm down. And I said, you know, dad, if I die, am I, will I be able to go to heaven? Will I see you there? I remember saying that. I remember it. And, and then I saw that same fear in my dad that I saw in my mom. And when you see that collective fear together, I mean, you know, at that time, I'm thinking, you know, my parents, they're the bravest people that I know. Um, you know, with the death of my sister, I mean, my parents, they, you know, they mourned. They, they, they went through that grieving process. But to see their strength through that as well, 
is just a testament of how brave they are, of how um, diligent they are in their emotions, how diligent they are in their recovery, in their emotional recovery. And so that night, um, you know, my dad was just, he was keeping a brave face. He, you could see fear in his eyes, but he had a smile on his face and, you know, he was just encouraging me like, Hey, you're going to be okay. You know, he didn't really ask me answer the question about heaven. I think he was more worried about like, Hey, let's just focus on right now and let, let's get you to the hospital. And I remember, um, you know, they, uh, they, they picked me up. Uh, I couldn't walk at all. Um, you know, they kind of picked me up and took me down the stairs. You know, we have one of those high rise, uh, houses where, you know, you have to, go, uh, go down some steps. Um, you know, and, uh, I remember it was pitch black dark and I, I remember seeing, you know, the ambulance lights on. It was like the coolest thing. I think, I think that was probably like the positive fun side of it. I got to see lights. Um, if anybody knows me, I'm a sucker for lights. I love patio lights. You know, I had lava lamps growing up. I had, uh, you know, like a, a traffic light. I had a disco ball. I had spotlights. I think I had a bat signal spotlight in my room growing up. I loved lights anyway. But, uh, yeah, I remember they were taking me to the, uh, ambulance doors, you know, they opened them up and it was just, it was so bright. The fluorescent lights in there was so bright. And I remember I started to really panic once they put me in there and they closed the doors. And as soon as you know, the second door shut, I, I passed out. Uh, I, I, I passed out. I do not remember a single thing. I was out of it for 48 hours I it's almost like I slept at the entire thing um I, I don't remember a thing from the moment they closed those ambulance doors to when I woke up uh, two days later and I remember having these I woke up with a bunch of uh you know a bunch of you know I had a couple of IVs in me uh but they were and I think I had my pulse ox you know on one of my fingers um you know just kind of monitoring and whatnot and I remember these cardboard boxes surrounding both my arms. It's like somebody put both my arms in Amazon boxes and they're ready to ship me off. You know, <laughs> like what in the world are these doing on me? And I come to find out that in the ambulance, I had such a hard time breathing. I was pulling my IVs out. I was ripping my mask off. I was grabbing onto anything and anyone just to help me to breathe. And they had the, they told me that, uh, I was one of the, uh, I was struggling so bad to breathe. I mean, that's how bad it got. And, uh, you know, again, I woke up two days later and I had these, uh, boxes of my arms to prevent me from pulling out tubes again. So <laughs> fun little experience there. And, um, I come to find out that, uh, that was the closest to dying that I had ever been. Uh, I actually remember uh, one of the pediatricians that was working the wards. Um, he was also the uh, doctor that had kind of worked me up down in the ER, um, assisted the other you know, emergency room physicians. And I'm not sure if you could tell a 14 year old kid this, but he literally said, you know, if, you know, any of your parents would have taken you to the hospital, you would have died on us. And I'll never forget that. I was like, can you tell a 14 year old kid that? I mean, can you? And I, I get that he's trying to express the severity of the situation, I, I agree with the severity of the situation. I just never thought I would hear that come from a doctor's voice. Um, I don't think I'll ever tell any of my patients that I may word it differently, but, uh, that freaked me out. That really did. And, um, 
yeah, I haven't been camping ever since then. But yeah, I was in the hospital for about two weeks, you know, doing uh, breathing treatments and trying to, you know, I was on a bunch of steroids, you know, anti-inflammatories to help uh, with my asthma. Uh, you know, prednisone, I'm sure a lot of you uh, have, you know, had a dose of steroids, you know, prednisone, oral steroids, uh, one time or another, um, you know, from your primary care physician. Uh, but it is uh, an asthmatic's uh, best friend, <laughs> and, you know, after an asthma episode. Um, so, yeah, I, it's just, it was surreal that I actually was in that situation. So, yeah, asthma has just been a big part of my life. Um, it's the primary reason why I did not play a wind instrument in band. Um, it's also one of the reasons why I did, you know, marching band. Uh, we weren't running. We were walking. Well, we were marching. Uh, I did not play a wind instrument. I remember, I think I tried trumpet. I tried trombone. Um, you know, it was that, um, time where I remember at Hallman music in, in Huntsville, uh, Miss Hallman, Nancy Hallman, great lady. I love her to death. Uh, I remember she brought a bunch of instruments to my elementary school and she got a bunch of us to try out these instruments. I think I was, you know, uh, fifth grade. I think I was 10 at the time and I tried trombone. I tried the trumpet. And I just could not really, you know, I couldn't get that embouchure, right? You know, for all my band nerds out there, you know, you know that embouchure, you know, the pursing of the lips, you know, and, and just being able to produce a sound. I couldn't do it. And even when I tried, I started wheezing, of course. <laughs> Anything was going to trigger me uh, in my asthma. Uh, it was going to cause me to wheeze. So she handed me some drumsticks and she said, hey, play something. And I just kind of uh, started playing something and, yeah, became a drummer. <laughs> right then and there. Uh, and so, you know, my drumming career had kind of taken off, you know, I've, uh, you know, I was able to teach a bunch of band camps. I even got to teach, uh, at the university of Alabama. So that was a fun story, you know, in, uh, 2011, the summer of 2011, I was able to become a bass drum, uh, instructor for the university of Alabama. And that was exciting times. I actually auditioned for their snare drum line. I was 24 at the time, and I went up a bunch of, uh, against a bunch of 18-year-olds, and they said, hey, you're old. <laughs> we see that you have some uh, uh, band camp experience and drum line instruction experience. I said, oh, yeah, you know, so. So I accepted the position uh, for that summer, and the first thing that I taught the bass drum line uh, was the Alabama fight song, and you better believe I was in heaven when that day had arrived for me to teach that uh, bass drum line. So exciting times. Uh, that, that was a tangent, but there's my band experience. But perhaps the most memorable time of my asthma life was asthma camp, the story you've been waiting to hear about. Uh, so yes, there is a uh, an asthma camp. It was sponsored by the YMCA of Montgomery in Alabama, and I believe I was 11 at the time. Yeah. And uh, it was for one week. It was free, free lodging, you know, food, everything. And it was called Camp Weasaway. No lie. It was called Camp Weasaway. And so uh, I remember that it was actually at the same camp that my sister had gone to for a diabetes camp. She had uh, type 1 diabetes. Um you know, so again, those uh, chronic illnesses that we talk about, you know, that was one of hers. Uh, that was, you know, asthma's mine. And um, so I remember going there, you know, it was it was about like a two hour drive from home. And I remember, you know, uh, when all the campers arrived, they looked like kids just like you and me, you know, uh, at the time when you were 11. Um, 
you know, just normal kids. And so they had a bunch of nurses there. They had a lot of volunteers there. And what they would do, they would triage you. You know, when you sign up and everything, they triage you. And so essentially that means, you know, they check your vitals. They, you know, see how you're breathing right now. They check your oxygenation. They give you, you know, some education on how to, you know, avoid asthma triggers while you're at camp, you know, all that stuff. And they, uh, you know, they have what's called a, a peak flow meter. So a peak flow meter is this little, uh, little gadget. Uh, you, it's like a little plastic thing. You, it has got like a tube and you blow into this tube and there's a little marker thing. And, and the harder you blow, you know, the more airflow that you have going through it, the little marker in front of you goes higher. So all of us had to do it. And, uh, if I remember correctly, I had the lowest, <laughs> I had the lowest reading. And for me, uh, that, I was actually breathing on a good day. You know, I wasn't around the cats at home. I wasn't around any potential triggers that I'm usually around today. That day was actually a good day, but for their standards, uh, at camp, I was not, uh, breathing very well at all. So they actually gave me two breathing treatments, you know, little nebulizer treatments right there on the spot. And then, you know, I improved after that. And I remember how well I felt after a day or two being away from the house. You know, anytime I was away from the house, um, you know, because we had cats there, cats were my, uh, that was the the allergen that just triggered me with all of my asthma. So, um, you know, so asthma camp was fun. <laughs> you know, uh, I met a lot of great kids. Uh, you know, we, we would have like fun nicknames for each other. Uh, you know, it was, it was a great time at camp. It really was, um, you know, they had little education classes. They made it fun. You know, I mean, we're, it's the summertime. We don't want it to be too boring, but you know, I learned a lot, you know, how to, you know, stay away from asthma triggers. You know, what is asthma? What really is it? And they showed like a lot of pictures and graphs and that, that helped me too, uh, to understand that. I remember we'd play sports and, you know, just a lot of times they, they would, you know, limit the amount of times that we would play sports because they want to make sure we don't, you know, get triggered into an asthma attack. Um, you know, uh, from what I remember, nobody that week had to be, you know, transported to the hospital for any reason. Um, we just had a great time out uh, throughout the week. And, uh, I remember, uh, we had an end of the camp dance <laughs> and, so I've had a lot of people, you know, the people that I've told this story to No, we don't like wrap arms and then, you know, you know, do puffs of inhalers to each other. I've had a lot of people say, oh, do you do that? I'm like, no, I don't go away. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's just like a classic dance. And, um, you know, it was a fun time. You know, it, it felt like I was in school, but I was also around people that I could relate to. So if you ever get the opportunity to send your child to some kind of education camp of some time, whether it be an ad- asthma education camp, a diabetes camp, you know, um, whatever it may be, you know, take advantage of that, right? Education is so important, you know, especially for kids. You know, when kids are away at school, if they're away on trips or over at friends' houses, you know, they they need to be having, you know, they need to have that responsibility of, you know, taking care of their health and knowing what to do when mom and dad aren't around or, you know, your uh, legal guardian's not around or whoever takes care of you, you know, you got to make sure that you are, um, you know, you're taking care of yourself even at that young age. And that's why we want to promote that education to our kids. If kids, you know, a lot of times kids may not have questions and that simply may be because they have no clue what to ask. You know, maybe they don't know the signs of 
you know, potential asthma attacks. They may not understand that, hey, I shouldn't be around someone who smokes because that smoke can, you know, target my asthma. So, you know, we need to educate our kids. We need to talk to them. We need to have open dialogues, open discussions about, you know, uh, you know, specifically for me, asthma, you know, I, I think, I feel like if I were to, you know, be deterred away from all those allergens, I feel like I would have had a better grasp on my, on my asthma health overall. So once I got into college, uh, I was away from a lot of the allergens that I was used to being exposed to, uh, up until, you know, high school and my asthma improved so much. I was using my rescue inhaler less. I even was a walk-on for the cross country team in our college. (laughs) I mean, I was able to finally run and run long distances and not have issues uh, like I used to when I was growing up. So, you know, asthma control um, overall, it can be achieved. But if you're going to achieve at something, you need to understand what it is in the first place. So with asthma, I know we've been talking about how it involves wheezing, you know, that high pitched sound. Um, uh, Essentially, asthma, it just involves you know, that bronchoconstriction, you know, the bronchioles, again, we talk about those, you know, those, those windpipes in our lungs, uh, they get smaller and smaller in diameter, and that allows for less airflow to be flowing through our lungs, you know, we need oxygen, and that allows us to not be able to breathe appropriately. So, you know, along with wheezing, you have coughing, you have recurrent bronchitis, you know, bronchitis is just, you know, anything with itis has inflammation, so inflammation of the bronchioles, bronchitis, you have that shortness of breath, uh, a lot of times you have exercise-induced asthma. That was definitely mine. Uh, but also, you know, when you're exposed to those allergens, right? So, you know, cat dander, dust, uh, roaches, um, grass, you know, rackweed, uh, a lot of different allergens. You know, for me, mine was cats. Cats was it. Uh, but I also had other, al- uh, you know, other allergens that I was exposed to. So if you don't know for sure which allergen it is, I encourage you to set up an appointment. You know, talk with your PCP. Again, any kind of... Uh, medical talk that we have on this show, I definitely want to make sure that I am really emphasizing that you talk to your primary care physician or your pediatrician uh, when determining a plan of action or when you're trying to find a a diagnosis of something. So, you know, a lot of times uh, pediatricians, you know, they may send you or your PCP may send you to an allergist and you could do skin testing uh, to see, you know, what kind of allergens that you are indeed, you know, allergic to. Uh, They have that. So I'm not going to go too deep into what they do, but uh, I encourage you to, you know, potentially, you know, consider seeing an allergen uh, specialist. Um, Additionally, you know, with the shortness of breath that you have, the wheezing, you also have that mucus buildup. So it it almost sounds like you're gurgling when you're coughing. You're coughing up that uh, mucus. You know, it looks like white sputum. Um, so that is a, that is a common thing with asthma. You know, uh, I was in that position called tripoding. All right. So essentially just imagine you're sitting down, you have both hands on your knees and you're in that sniffing position. Uh, your, your, your nose is up in the air and, and you're trying to take deep breaths. All right. That allows you to be able to hopefully expand your lungs a little bit better in that time. But, uh, tripoding, that is another sign of a potential asthma attack that could occur at any moment. And I know we talked about uh, potential triggers that could cause your uh, asthma to flare up. Um, probably the two biggest ones in children are colds and other allergens. So, uh, and perhaps the most common virus that we've been talking about for the past four years is COVID, coronavirus. Coronavirus loves the lungs, and it is an asthmatic's worst nightmare. 
Uh, it does make breathing a whole lot more difficult, but it doesn't even have to be COVID. It could be also be, you know, other, you know, basic rhinovirus, um, you know, a, a lot of the other viruses that can cause, you know, just a common cold, those colds can flare up your uh, asthma as well. Um, so, you know, it's very important to, you know, speak with this with your, you know, PCP, make sure that you're voicing your concerns about it to avoid um, getting to the point to where, you know, this may have to be escalated to the emergency room or even, you know, inpatient uh, hospital admission. So, um, you know, as a pediatrician, uh, we would do what's called an asthma action plan. And essentially what I would, it, it's, it's a great plan. It, it, it's literally a paper plan. Uh, you sit down with the patient and the patient's, um, you know, guardians and you, um, you know, everybody is on board with what happens when you start wheezing, you know, uh, what can we do to decrease the risk of you getting to that wheezing state? You know, are there any smokers in the house? You know, smoke triggers that asthma so easily. I remember talking to parents. And I said, hey, you know, if you're going to smoke, do it outside. And when you do smoke, you need to change your, you know, change your clothes, change your shirt, because that smoke gets into the fibers of the, the fabric uh, of that shirt or jacket that you're wearing. And, um, you know, if you hug your kids or even if your kids are, you know, in a close vicinity, they can, I mean, they'll be triggered pretty instantly, uh, with that, uh, with that wheezing. So, you know, things like that, um, are very advantageous, uh, for, you know, monitoring asthma and just being open and communicating about how you can best take care of your asthma at that point in time. Again, this is all for, you know, uh, chronic diseases, uh, involved with asthma. Obviously there's other diseases we haven't talked about. This is just kind of my take and my experience with it, but also my experience with other patients as a pediatrician, uh, in how to really how to manage asthma. Um, you can have a great quality of life. Um, do not let asthma, uh, you know, not allow you to be able to go out and do those fun activities that you want. Uh, asthma can be managed appropriately uh, with the right medications, the right technique of using those medications and avoiding those allergens. Uh, but again, you know, always reach out to that PCP. Um, and yeah, life can be good, even even with asthma. Personally, for me, um, you know, I still have my rescue inhaler, but I'm not using it, you know, four or five puffs a day, which is what I used to do when I was growing up. Uh, typically, uh, the recommendation is roughly two, if you're having to use it at least two puffs in a week, you need to be escalated to, you know, maybe inhale a corticosteroid. Um, yeah. And I did not get on an inhale corticosteroid until a little bit later in life. So, and even when I did, I didn't, you know, I wasn't responsible and using it like I should. So, uh, you know, Parents, make sure that your kids are using, um, you know, their inhalers appropriately, their medications appropriately, and uh, you can live a you can live a great life. Okay. Well, that's it for this week. Thanks so much for listening. Be sure to subscribe and check out all the Phil's podcasts on Instagram. I want to thank my producer and marketing director Caleb McLean for his hard work and diligence. Remember to give yourself some grace and remember to join me next week as we get into the fields in all the Phil's. So long. <laughs>